Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey talks about what it means to learn the ways of God. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Exodus 33, uh, Moses gives this pretty stunning declaration. He says, teach me your ways that I may know you. Teach me your ways that I may know you. And here's, here's the principle that I want you to really get. If you want to know God, you have to know his ways. There's no way around it. If you want to know God, you must know his ways. And if you want to know God's ways, what does that mean you have to know? The word. The word. The word is the primary method by which we learn the ways of God, okay? Therefore, it is the primary method by which we learn and know God. Now, that seems so simple, and I, I totally get that. Everybody's like, yeah, I've, I've got that, man. I've been a Christian for quite a while. I, I get it. To, to know the Bible means to know the Lord. But here's the deal. If I had to guess, there are many Christians in the world today, many believers in the world today, who do not know the word, yet they do think they know God. You want to do a convicting exercise? Close your eyes. You ready? Just ready for it. Here we go. There are over 36,000 verses in the Bible. How many of them do you know? How many do you have memorized? How many of those 36,000 verses do you think that you could just kind of pull up in your mind whenever you're ready and start pondering their meaning? All right, you may open your eyes. And y'all are probably the fieriest group of Christians I know. Is that not a really convicting little exercise to do? Wait a second, Lord, I thought I knew the word, but I mean, I might know 50 verses. I might know 100 verses. I'm pretty well-versed in the Bible, guys. I don't know 36,000 verses. To know God means to know his word. And there are many Christians out there who have no clue. They have no concept. They might know 10 verses. They might know five verses. They might know maybe a whole book of the Bible, but they have not been trained by the whole counsel of God and they have convinced themselves that they know God. But really what they know is this kind of weird blend of their own personality in a little bit of Bible. That doesn't mean that they're not saved. It just means maybe they're not mature. And here's what I have noticed at least in the Bible Belt. That's where I've done church. I've only ever really done church in the Bible Belt so I could speak to our region. Here's what I have noticed is that there are many people who they get their theology, they form their theology. That means the, the way that they think about God and the way that they interact with God. They form their theology based on methods other than the Bible. That the, the primary formation of many believers' theology is what is said in the pulpit, what is sung on the stage, it comes from conversations that you have maybe with other believers or perhaps even other non-believers. Non or maybe it comes from experiences that you've had or lack of experiences. And if we're honest, it's so easy 
to make those things kind of come together in this amalgamation and form our theology, and the Bible itself is not the primary thing forming it. Now, those things are all very good. I I love a a good message, and I love good worship songs, and I love good conversations about Bible and, and what the Lord is doing, and I love experiences with God, but all of those things are merely meant to to aid in the fortification of your Bible-born theology. Does that make sense? As Christians, we are to be deeply and richly rooted in the word of God, not in what somebody says about the word of God. We are to be richly grounded. As Christians and sons and daughters, we are called to be Bereans. Now, some of you, you know what that word means, and so you get it, and some of you have never heard that term in your life. The Bereans, they were a group of Jews in the land of Berea. And in Acts chapter 17, it details what makes this group of Jewish people so what the Bible calls noble. And I'm going to read it for you right here. Acts chapter 17, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And as a result, many of them believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. You and I, gatekeepers, we are striving to be a company of Bereans. Those who would not just read the word, but those who would examine the word, those who would be richly grounded in the word, those who would study it daily, those who would meditate on it. That we, that the, the thing that we're going after is that we wouldn't form our theology like everybody else tends to, the lazy way. I say everybody else, not everybody else does it, but you know what I'm saying. The tendency of our own hearts to form our theology by just repeating what somebody else says but instead to seek it out for ourselves. At Gatekeepers, my hope is that together and individually, we would learn to labor over the very word of God. That we would allow the word of God to agitate us, to convict us, to sharpen us, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to confuse us, to confound us, that we would allow the word of God to do its job and pierce our very hearts. And we want this, not because we want some badge of honor that we can walk around and strut and show off our Bible knowledge because guess what? God says that he opposes that group of people. No, no, no. We don't want to labor over the scriptures. We don't want to grow in our understanding of the scriptures daily for some, swarm, some, for some sort of pride, but instead because we want intimacy. Teach me your ways that I may know you. It's not about knowing about God. It is simply about knowing God. You want intimacy with the Lord, then that means you must become like a Berean. And you must labor in the scriptures. Here's here's what a Berean does. They don't just read the word, they examine it. They wrestle with it. They determine in themselves to know it. And when they come to a passage that hurts, they embrace the pain. 
When they come to a passage that confuses them, they don't just close their Bibles and say, well, I guess that's for someone else. I guess that's for scholars. No, no, if they're confused by it, they dig deeper. And when they come to passages that offend them, they humbly bow before the words of life and profess to know nothing. Now you may ask, what does any of this have to do with the book of Exodus? And here's the reality, guys. The book of Exodus is getting ready to get real. It's about to get offensive. It's about to quite possibly mess with some of your theology. And in an era where the primary sermon that's preached from the pulpit is the grace of God and the primary song that's sung from the stage is the love of God. You're going to come to a passage where God himself comes out of heaven and kills people. We don't sing about that. There's not a lot of churches. There certainly are some for sure, but there's not a lot of churches that preach on it. And if you're going to be a Berean, it means you're going to embrace the entire counsel of God, not just the things that make us feel good. And if you're going to be a Berean, you're going to have to wrestle with the fact that the same God who saves is the same God who kills. The same God who came to save the world is the same God who will judge the world. And what we see in the 10 plagues of Egypt is it's actually a precursor judgment foreshadowing the judgment that's going to hit the earth at the end of the age. And I so desperately want to arm you with truth and teach you how to, to grapple with the hard texts. And so that's what we're doing. So we're gonna spend the next two weeks looking at the 10 plagues of Egypt very specifically focusing next week on the 10th plague. That's when, when, when God himself comes down and starts killing the firstborn of every one who didn't have the blood over the doorpost. So we're gonna look at the 10th plague and we're gonna primarily look at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Now, can I ask just by show of hands, I realize everybody here, some people have been a Christian for like a week. Some people have been growing up in the church. How many of you are familiar with the concept of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Raise it high. That makes me really happy. That's gonna make my job a little easier. That's a very hard truth and hard statement to understand. And rather than just blow past it, we're gonna look at it. It may hurt. It may sting. It may offend. It may confuse. But it is true nonetheless and when those things happen, we embrace them and we dive deeper into the text because we want to know his ways that we may know the Lord. Amen? So if you'll just bear with me over the next couple of weeks, take my metaphorical hand. We're gonna walk through what I think are some very difficult passages to grapple with. And my hope is that your heart will be provoked towards love and intimacy and closeness and affection with the Lord, but also deep sobriety. 
My hope is that you guys will hear this message and it will drive you deeper into the text, deeper into the word that you may be driven deeper into intimacy. Amen? All right. Recovering the 10 plagues of Egypt. Um, we're going to start in chapter, we're going to briefly touch chapter four. We're going to hit chapter five. And then I'm going to read to you the narrative found throughout seven, um, seven, eight, and nine. Okay, the 10 plagues of Egypt are, are, are found in Exodus 7 through 12 specifically. 7 through 12. That's chapters, not verses. Okay, I'm asking you something. I don't ever give you homework, but I need you to do your homework. By the time we get to this, uh, till next Thursday, I'm asking you to, in your own time, read Exodus 7 through 12. It's very important. You know why it's important? Because I don't want to stand up here next week and have to read Exodus 7 through 12 to give you context. Amen? All right. There we go. So you're going to read 7 through 12 on your own. I'm going to briefly, here's what I've done. I've, I've done the same thing I, I tend to always do with these long passages. I've, I've kind of lined them up through different, uh, you know, different narratives and, and kind of strung them together and then taken out the filler so that you can at least see the plot line of the story. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to start in verse 4. I'm just going to read a bunch of Bible to you. And then what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at five lessons from the 10 plagues. We're only going to look at one of them today. Next week, we're going to... Look at four of them. So open your Bibles, go to Exodus chapter four, verses 21 through 23. Okay, Moses, he's having this burning bush encounter. He's having a conversation with the Lord. The Lord has told him, I want you to go. He's argued. He's now gotten Aaron to be his mouthpiece and God is getting ready to give him instruction on the, uh, at Mount Sinai what he's to do when he goes to Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. And he had just showed him some, some miracles, his staff turned into a snake and his hand leprous and all that. So you shall do all the miracles uh, that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord of Israel, or thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So that right there is a very important text and we're gonna to get to it in a moment. But I want you to understand what just happened. God just told Moses, go to Pharaoh, perform the miracles, tell him to let my people go. By the way, Moses, he's not going to do it. But tell him if he doesn't do it, the end goal, the end result in all of this is that he will lose his firstborn son prophesying about the 10th plague. So then we're gonna to move to chapter five, verses one and two. Afterwards, after this conversation, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. You really need to pay attention to Pharaoh in this narrative. So Moses does exactly 
what, what God tells him to do. Pharaoh bucks up and asks this question, who is the Lord? Well, guess what? God's getting ready to show him who the Lord is. And what he does is he actually increases Israel's labor. So not only does he not let them go, he makes life worse on the nation of Israel, okay? Raise your hand if you played sports, ever. I used to wrestle, okay? And uh, here's the thing. Sometimes when you play uh, sports, uh, especially in wrestling, for whatever reason, if, uh, if, if somebody did something that they shouldn't have done, you know what the coach does? Punishes everyone. And so when boots would show up high to practice, we're all running 12 minutes of stairs. And what did we want to do after boots showed up high to practice? We all wanted to kill boots, right? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you football players know what I'm talking about when the guy shows up late and now all of a sudden you're running laps when you didn't do anything wrong? Well, that's exactly what actually happens here. So Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh and they say, hey, let my people go. And he's not even asking for the full let go. He's actually only asking for a few days to go do a feast. And Pharaoh's like, no. And not only that, I'll show you who's boss. I'm gonna make their life way worse. I'm gonna put them in impossible situations and put impossible demands on them. And Moses and Aaron come walking out of Pharaoh's chamber to a group of Israelites who were like the wrestling team when Boots got high. And they're like, what did you do, Moses? What'd you do, Aaron? You promised us deliverance but instead you've made our life worse. And the very people that Moses is advocating for start pronouncing judgment upon Moses and Aaron. Verse 22 and 23, this is Moses' response to such a crazy circumstance. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh, this is so insightful. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even send me? Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, all he has done is evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God's response to this was to repeat the promise, repeat what he was going to do, and remind Moses that he's the Lord and he's got it all under control. He sends Moses back to Pharaoh, and now we're going to start with the first plague. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. He's answering the question, who is the Lord? Behold, With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. What an epic scene that must have been. Can you imagine that? Here's Moses. You have Pharaoh walking out to go bathe, get some water in the Nile. And then you see Moses all alone standing there. He takes his staff. You can imagine the wind starts blowing and he goes, thus says the Lord of hosts. And he slams his staff in the water and all of a sudden it turns to blood. How dope is that? That's like super epic. 
probably felt a little weird doing it, but super cool. Here's the thing about the Nile. The Nile was the source of finance, the source of economy, the source of water, and the source of food for Egypt. By taking out the Nile, you've dismantled its entire ecosystem. But something happens. There's a couple of magicians in the court of Pharaoh, these little pagan devil-worshiping magicians, and they figure out a way to, co- or to, um, uh, to copy that plague. And they only do it for a moment, but they figured out a way to turn water into blood. And so Pharaoh writes it off. Look at the response. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. So as the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not even take this to heart. Next plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. And he begins to unpack what that looks like. And it's kind of hilarious. You can read about it in chapter eight. He's like, basically like there's frogs in your kitchen. There's frogs in your bedroom. There's frogs in your cupboard. There's frogs in your bathroom. There's frogs on the walls. I mean, he's like, he's like, it's gonna go here, 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 and here. Here's the thing about frogs. Frogs were sacred. And frogs you could not kill. But what happened to all the frogs? They died. And they started piling them up into these piles all across the city as a kind of big, you know, bless you to the pagan gods. And it started to stink. And Pharaoh gets so frustrated that he beseeches Moses. He says, Moses, dude, you got to call God. You got to tell this. So you got to call him off. So he does. Eventually, Moses agrees to ask God to stop the frogs, and he does. Now, look at Pharaoh's response. This is fascinating. Chapter 8, verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the gnats, but they could not. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this surely is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Chapter eight, verses 20 through 22. Thus says the Lord, this is the next plague. Let my people go that they may serve me or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time and did not let the people go. This is going to continue for another five plagues where God would do something miraculous and plead with Pharaoh to just let his people go. And every time Pharaoh's heart would get harder and harder and harder. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to talk to you briefly about a hardened heart, a hardened heart. Um, how do I, I want to say, I want to make sure I say this correctly. Uh, 
this is actually a deeply pastoral point. But if you're not careful, you may think it's just a theological point. But it's not. But unfortunately, I have to address some of the theological arguments in the room in order to get to the pastoral point. So if you'll just bear with me, I realize some of you guys, you've like freshly saved. You just need to like hang in there for a second. We're going to get to you. Um, there are those of you in the room who are Calvinist. Raise your hand. It's okay. Be proud. Cool. Right. There are those of you in the room that you are Calvinist. You are, you are uh, reformed in your theology. And I love that. Fun little fact about me. I'm actually not reformed. I'm not a Calvinist but I almost exclusively only listen to Calvinists. If you go look at all of my sermons and all of my YouTube feed, it is all Reformed people. Those are my guys. I don't know why, but I just do. The thing about being a Calvinist is this text that I just read is often regarded as a proof text to prove that God predestines people, that God predestines some for hell against their will and some for heaven against their will. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to remind you of 2 Timothy 2.23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. So I'm about to use what is probably the primary proof text in the Calvinistic camp, which is Exodus chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, and so on, uh, and then referenced in Romans nine. And I would love for you to just help me. And after the sermon, when you go out there and you go eat, Remember 2 Timothy 2.23, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. I do not want to produce any quarrels and I really do not want you guys debating this. And I know some of you, you're going to go out there and you'll be like, you're going to be looking at your Armenian friends and you'll be like, <laughs> got him. No, we're not doing that. I don't want you arguing over the Calvinistic point or Calvinism or Armenianism or free will or predestination. I don't want you arguing over it. And I promise you this, a couple of 20-something-year-olds, probably, just going out on a limb here, not going to solve the tension that has existed for a few hundred years. Okay. That being said, um, I want to talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart for just a moment. Some of you, um, you've read this before. Maybe you were exposed to uh, Calvinistic or Reformed teaching. And I've had this conversation with many Christians over the years, which is the only reason I'm bringing this up, is I've had several conversations with people where they, they come to this text and it terrifies them. They read Exodus 4 where God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let my people go. And it scares them. It scares them because they think, well, wait a second. I'm struggling with obedience. I'm struggling with sin. Is it possible that God has not chosen me to be one of the elect? Is it possible that God has predestined someone else and not me? And I've had literal conversations with people, and it's way more common than you think, who are born-again, Bible-believing Christians. They love the Lord, but they're immature, and they're struggling, and they're not that far along in their sanctification process yet, and they think that their struggle equals non-elect. And I've had them point out this text and be like, maybe God's just hardening my heart. And I'm scared. I struggle. I'm like Pharaoh. God tells me to do stuff and, and I do stuff that I shouldn't do and I know that. Am I like Pharaoh? 
And I'll just tell you, here's the pastoral point. If you are walking around and you are afraid consistently that you're not saved and you're constantly asking the question, is this real for me? Am I really truly born again? Am I really elect? I'm gonna tell you if you're concerned about it, you are. If you have any doubt and you're, and you're concerned and you're like, oh God, I, I don't wanna be like Pharaoh, that means you're not like Pharaoh. Because you know who didn't do that? Pharaoh. It says that Pharaoh didn't take any of this to heart. There was zero concern. There was zero entertaining that perhaps he might be wrong. And if you were at all grieved over your sin, if you are at all concerned about the status of your heart as it relates to the Lord, then you are saved. Because Romans 8 teaches us that that only comes through the working and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you only get the Holy Spirit upon salvation. And there is room for error in the kingdom. Yes, there is. There is room for the 20-year-old to be in process. There's room for immaturity. There's room for mistakes. And I'm going to tell you, there's actually just room for your sin. And just because you struggle does not mean that God has hardened your heart and you were never really truly born again. Pharaoh did not care. There was zero ounce of repentance in Pharaoh's heart. God never hardens someone's heart against their will. I want you to think about that for just a moment. God never hardens someone, someone's heart against their will. As a matter of fact, this concept of God hardening their heart, this is where we're going to talk to the Calvinists and the Armenians. And if you don't side with either one of them, you're my favorite group. Just kidding. But if you don't side with either one of them, just chill for a second. Okay. The concept that God would choose who is hardened and choose who is softened, that concept, though it's found here, perhaps may not be as clear cut as you think. Doesn't matter if you're a Calvinist. And it doesn't matter if you're an Armenian. I promise you, the issue of predestined versus free will is not nearly as clear as you were told it is, whether you were told from the Armenians or whether you were told from the Calvinists. Because here's the thing, you've got this text right here. It's so clear because it says that, that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. The problem is in chapter eight, it says that Pharaoh is the one who hardened his heart. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, yeah, but wait a second. What about Romans chapter nine? Because Romans chapter nine talks about this and says that, that God hardens whom he will harden and has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. That it's God who predestines man and, and God chooses some for hell and some for heaven. And I would say this, that yeah, it says that, but in Hebrews, you know what it says? That the children of Israel, they were hardened not by God, but by the deceitfulness of sin. And I don't think God hardened the entire nation of Israel to not enter the promised land that he said, I want you to enter. Matter of fact, three different times in the book of Hebrews, they would quote a warning. Hey, today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of the wilderness. And so Hebrews seems to be very clear that the hardening of the heart is a result of sin and disobedience not a result of God um, bypassing your free will. But you've got this in Exodus. You've got another passage in John 12. Why am I saying this? 
because it's not as clear as you might think it is, whether you're an Armenian or whether you're a Calvinist. And I hear the debates and I have the conversations with all of you guys. And it's just easier for me to say this out here in a public setting. You're not going to solve the debate. Neither side's an idiot. Contrary to what you may think, John Piper's not dumb. Michael Brown is not dumb. I am not dumb. Pastor Jeff is not dumb. Uh, whoever's a Calvinist in this room is not dumb. Whoever's an Armenian in the room is not, is not dumb. And whoever is, is not either of them, they're not dumb either. And what it should do is it should cause us, when we see this tension in Hebrews and when we see this, this tension in Exodus where it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go, it should cause us to tremble and it should cause us to realize maybe we don't know what we think we know. Maybe we should not be as haughty, as sure of ourselves on an issue that has been debated by some of the smartest people on the planet for a hundred years. And so here's the tension that I want you guys to live in. Some of you will, will literally talk to me after service and I love it. It, it makes my heart happy because you love theology. I like theology. And you'd be like, hey, I know you're not a Calvinist, but the thing that you said, it's kind of Calvinist. You'll be like, hey, I know you're not an Armenian, but the thing that you said kind of sounded Armenian, right? That's by design. It's just by design because I kind of ride the fence. I like some things about this. I like some things about that. I will tell you, I do not lean towards Calvinism. I lean towards Armenianism, but here's the deal. It doesn't matter. And the point is that we should allow the text to, to create a tension and we should be comfortable in the tension because it comes from the text. And so it's okay to not have an answer. And I would say this, and this is what Charles Spurgeon says. I'm not quoting him, but I do have the quote if you, want to, if you ask me for it afterwards, right? He says this, he goes, listen, I would rather get rid of all of my theological concepts if it meant that I got to keep the text. He says, when I come to the text, the text rules over my theology. And I've said it like this in the past, the text informs your theology. Your theology shouldn't inform your reading of the text. And we've looked at theology in the past as if it's a safeguard in our reading of the text. And that is inaccurate. And that is a recipe for cults. That is a recipe for heresy. The text informs your theology and your theology, my theology, it must bow to the words of life. And if we don't have it all figured out, that's actually okay. So have your doctrinal convictions. If you're a Calvinist, yeah, baby, be a Calvinist, that's cool. If you're an Armenian, dope. If you're a Molinist, awesome. But at the end of the day, please do not make the mistake that I see so many young people, especially young men, make in thinking that they've nailed this thing. Because yeah, you may have Romans 4, but the other side has a lot of text too. Amen? I'm gonna, I'm gonna end this concept of a hardened heart with I think is, is a very helpful, very pastoral way to say it. This is, um, David Guzik, he's a, a Bible commentator that I use often. This is what he says. Who really hardened Pharaoh's heart? We might say that it was both God and Pharaoh, but whenever God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he never did it against Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh never said, oh, I want to do what is good and right. I want to bless these people of Israel. And God answered, no, for I will harden your heart against them. When God hardened, he allowed Pharaoh's heart to do what Pharaoh wanted to do. And he quotes Romans 1, God gave Pharaoh over to his sin. 
And so if you find yourself in deep struggle, but the inner man in you is going, I really love the Lord and I really want the Lord. But you've got all kinds of struggles and you're wondering, am I really saved? Has God hardened my heart? Here's what I would say. You're probably saved. If your will is to do his will, that's a great sign. Now, likewise, here's the other thing. Now, this text may not say it, but you can kind of infer it. Here's what happens is, is God gives Pharaoh 10 different opportunities, actually 11, to repent. Let my people go. It doesn't have to end this way. Pharaoh, you can make the right decision right now. You can let my people walk and I won't destroy you. And every time, Pharaoh gets harder and harder. And he says, no. Till finally, it takes God killing the firstborn child for him to let his people go. And even then, he doesn't come to the Lord. He ends up running after the children of Israel trying to kill them. Pharaoh, I believe, was hardened by the deceitfulness of his own sin and disobedience. Hebrews seems to be very clear that your continual, willful, rebellious disobedience will lead to a hardened heart. And a hardened heart will lead to an eroded faith. And if you are are too casual with your sin, if you're not trying, if you're, if you're just like, well, I'm gonna do what I wanna do because grace, what ends up happening is you could become like Pharaoh and you don't even know it. And you get harder and you get harder and you get harder where you end up walking away from the Lord. And it should remind us today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts. It should remind us that our sin is to be taken seriously. Yes, you were forgiven, past, present, and future, all of your sin, never to be put before you again, but you still have to deal with your sin by grace and through the Holy Spirit. God still asks you to walk on this sanctification journey, even though all of your sin's forgiven. And that's why, because if you continue in willful and rebellious disobedience, what will happen is your heart becomes calloused towards the Lord. And even upon the greatest miracle, the greatest judgment, the greatest form of pursuit from God himself, you will say, no, who is the Lord? I'm the Lord. And our sin, it's not to be taken lightly. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, where he says, for if we continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but the the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire, which will consume the adversaries. He says, he says, you know that whoever dies without the law of Moses dies on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse is it for those of us who have trampled underfoot the son of God and so insulted the spirit of grace. That's Hebrews 10. It's a really hard passage. So now some of you are like, oh crap, I got strongholds. Oh man, I might be saved. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you must keep your heart tender by constantly going before the Lord, by constantly repenting, by constantly getting up every time you fall. If you fall every day, get back up every day. 
If you fall 10 times a day, get up 10 times a day and brush yourself off and say, Lord, I should have done it. I'm so sorry. And I don't want to do it anymore. And I love you. And I'll go to war against my sin. And the beauty is if you continually do that, your heart is protected from being hardened. You only get hardened when you stop repenting. And so for those of you in the room, number one, who you struggle and you feel like maybe the Lord's given you over to your sin. You feel like the Lord's not elected you. Maybe, maybe you're not saved and, and he, Exodus 4 scares you. I'm just gonna tell you, you're probably saved. The Holy Spirit's probably dwelling within you. And that's because you, you hate your sin and you love the Lord, but you just haven't quite reconciled the two yet. And just know that the author of your faith is also the perfecter of your faith and he's everything in between. And he's gonna lead you in this process of sanctification and it's gonna be good and it's gonna be right and you will be molded, I promise. But to those of you in the room, you don't really care about your sin. You'll be willful, you'll be rebellious, you'll be flippant. You're easy to just slap grace on it and call it a day. And you forgot how to to anguish over your sinfulness. Know that I believe that's very dangerous ground for a hardened heart. The problem is, and I'm kind of grateful the Lord doesn't do this, there is no threshold. It's not like a sin threshold where it's like, okay, once you've sinned 175 times in a three-week period of time, your heart gets stage one hardened. He doesn't give us those lines. He just says, hey, by the way, don't forget the children of Israel. Don't be like them. They were deceived by the, or they were, they were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's all we got. And so we're like, well, dang, I don't know where that line is. And I'm grateful he doesn't do that because we would all try to get to like 100 and sin 174, right? We'd be like, all right, we're good. Whew. I'm in by technicality. There is no line. I can't tell you where you're at in that process, but you know. And so my admonition to you, if you're super flippant and casual at your sin, you might need to get to know Jesus. I'm not saying that you're not saved, but you might want to re-up. You need to call yourself to anguish over your sin. And today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, Do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of the wilderness when they tested me and they tried me. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.